0: Namotasab goa to arahato sammasam buddhastam Namotasab goa to arahato sammasam buddhastam Namotasab goa arahato sammasam buddhastam Udgham dhammang Take the opportunity to talk about the Dhamma teaching on the calendar page, uh, the Forest Sangha calendar, uh, at the time of the uh, first Sunday of the month, but this month it coincided with the beginning of the new year, so that didn't happen. So I thought tonight we could consider this teaching together. Those of you that have looked at it, uh, uh, typical poignant, relevant teaching by Ajahn Chah where he says practice does not depend on whether you're sitting or walking rather what is required is a continuous awareness of the flow of consciousness and feelings whatever is happening compose yourself and always be aware of this flow whatever is happening always be aware of the flow of consciousness and feelings. Now, I'm gonna, I read that, and one of the things that really stands out for me, and one of the reasons why I particularly like it, is it demonstrates the way in which Ajahn Chah consistently gave emphasis to the spirit of the spiritual life. Yes, there are, of course, there's the dimension of the forms the conventions, the traditions, the structures, the techniques. We're all familiar with the forms of religion. All religions have their conventions, their forms. But at the base of all religions is the essence or the spirit. And one of the things that was most characteristic and so attractive about Ajahn was how evidently uh, he gave priority to the spirit. It wasn't that he didn't respect the forms. He was impeccable in showing respect to the forms. But the forms are not the point. And without the forms, maybe the spirit could have been lost. There's a, 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 a quote from the Buddha in the Pali language where it says, Vinayo ayu, which means the Vinaya or the, the monastic discipline determines the dispensation of the Buddha. In other words, the Buddha's teaching is directly linked to uh, the Vinaya, the the form of the training rules that the Buddha laid down. So even though the point of the Buddha's teaching is not observing a bunch of uh, intricate uh, rules, they have their place, they have a very important place. Being able to recognise the place of the forms, but the priority is the spirit. Mm. The essence of the teaching is the spirit, which is, as is mentioned in this verse, the the awareness, the truth-discerning awareness, uh, the light of awareness that brings about the purification, brings about the transformation of the heart, or the the heart that is distorted, disfigured by greed, hatred, delusion. uh, What is it that... leads to the purification of the transformation. It's the truth-discerning awareness. So Ajahn Chah is emphasizing this in this short teaching. Also, looking at that calendar page, is a very beautiful photo, uh, which I particularly like, which, if I understand it correctly, uh Dhamma, who's in the photo, can correct me, but I think it's the, uh, the Sangha of Wat Nanachat, heading off on Tudong into the border regions of Thailand and Burma and the province of Kanchanaburi, on Tudong, which they do once a year. Is that correct? Yes, very good. And uh, you see the composure of the Sangha there on Tudong, and for me what that, uh, that shows is the, the form that Ajahn Chah gave us as a form that works. This, this uh, community has been living there in the northeast of Thailand uh, for over 40 years now, that Ajahn Sumedho started, at that, Wat that chart really works, a very functional uh, community and uh, wonderful training environment. So it uh, shows us these two aspects of, of the training, the form, but it's a form that works. It's not a redundant form. And the form is not dominant, but the form is there in support of the spirit. Now, Emphasizing this tonight, and uh, some of you will know and will have noticed the shrine we have set up here to Ajahn Chah. Tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of the passing away of Ajahn Chah, and uh, tomorrow evening we'll also have a puja dedicated to him and listen to a talk given by him. And, And this is one of the characteristics of his teaching that we recognize the place of form. But we don't forget the spirit, the dhamma itself, the truth-discerning awareness itself. It reminds me of uh, a way a good friend of mine used to talk. um, A lady, her name was Barney Shorter. She's since passed away, but she used to live in Edinburgh. She was a, a Jungian psychoanalyst. And in talking about religion... I remember her saying how the forms have the function of serving the spirit. Uh, when in the realm of religion it's the other way around and the spirit is subservient to the form, then the religion has failed and it's lost its relevance. I think that's helpful to reflect on. Yeah, the forms are there to serve the spirit. In this case, the truth discerning awareness that transforms the heart. Mm. But so long as we suffer from a clouded mind, so long as there's still delusion operating, then we're all vulnerable to losing perspective. Yeah. We're all susceptible to the heresy of materialistic view, the you know, materialism that is the result of. Uh, consciousness out of heedlessness, clinging to the body mind and becoming misidentified as the body mind. When consciousness becomes identified as the body mind through clinging, then our faculties malfunction. We misperceive. We see that which is beneficial as not beneficial. We see that which is not beneficial as beneficial. Or, as the Buddha pointed out in that verse from the Dhammapada, mistaking the real for the false and the false for the real we live a life of falsity. It's the result of clinging. And given that this is what we're doing, then we need to factor in that actually uh, we misperceive even the beautiful uh, forms of the spiritual life. We overvalue sometimes the forms and the the spiritual techniques and the techniques and the traditions that we inherit. We can cling to them. They may in the beginning serve the spirit. They may get us introduced to the path. But if we don't really pay attention to how we're using these forms, these conventions, then we can end up becoming obstructed by them. We can stop growing, in other words. Uh, So Ajahn Chah was very skilled at uh, regularly, continually, uh, often by means of humour, often by means of frustration, uh, pointing out to places where we might be coming to, overly valuing the forms and conventions and forgetting that this practice is about letting go. This practice is about softening... Our habits of clinging, mm. maturing the quality of trust, building up the strength of awareness that means that we can tolerate more frustration, more ambiguity, more uncertainty, and take our investigations deeper. Mm. So, this uh, 25th anniversary that, <clears throat> that's happening right now, Wapapong, mm-hmm. So um, I think at least 2,000 people as lay followers there, camped out in the forest and listening to Dhamma talks, and 800 or so Sangha members, from what I'm told. I got a message from my friend, the abbot of Nanachart, yesterday, and about 800 Sangha members there listening to the Dharma talks, meditating, and uh, taking the opportunity to remember what we had the good fortune to receive from our teacher Ajahn Chah. But even a teacher like Ajahn Chah, even the teachings of the Buddha, we can misuse them. Maybe you came across that story in the scriptures of where the Buddha... uh, scolded this young monk who was just sitting there staring at him the whole time. Apparently the Buddha was very good looking and radiant in his appearance. And this young monk used to just sit there staring at the form of the Buddha because he was so beautiful to look at and radiant complexion. And, and The Buddha said, you're looking at the wrong thing. It's not the form of the Buddha that we're supposed to be paying attention to. It's not even the form of the Dhamma. It's not even learning how to you know, recite all the scriptures we can learn to recite the scriptures to study the scriptures to memorize the scriptures but those are still the forms we can be making lots of merit we can be keeping lots of precepts but not really learning how to let go so remembering there's always that danger. So long as we're tra- attached to the body-mind, there's always a the danger that we're going to fall from a distorted materialistic view on the spiritual life. And then we miss out on the benefit. Very unfortunate. When Ajahn Chah was alive, he uh, was uh, very cautious and, and very resistant, actually, about people producing these medallions with his image on it. You may or may not have become aware of this tradition in Thailand and perhaps other Buddhist countries as well, I don't know, but certainly in Thailand people put a lot of score on these uh, metallic medallions or sometimes they're cast in clay and people encase them and wear them around the neck and, and they're apparently blessed by those who supposedly have the power to bless them, and people wear these amulets around their neck and uh, with the idea that it's going kind to of protect them and keep them safe and and so on. And Ajahn Shah was uh, uh, distinctly different from a lot of the other teachers in Thailand. He wouldn't endorse this generally. I don't know that he had an absolute fixed view on it. He wasn't known for having fixed views on things. He actually was known for or regularly contradicting himself and changing his mind. But uh, generally speaking, he was very resistant to such practices as making uh, likenesses or images of him and then projecting too much onto them. Mm. He didn't go so far as to dispensing with Buddha images. Again, as you know, probably I would expect that the Buddha himself didn't encourage Buddha images something that arrived in the buddhist tradition around 500 years after the buddha passed away coinciding with the time the greeks were in what is now known as afghanistan and that's when the first buddhas arrived on the scene and you see the those ancient buddha images where, where the buddhas got a top knot and wearing a toga and looks like a greek god and that was from that point onwards we have buddha images well that's a very long time ago and they do seem to have been integrated into the Buddhist community and now they uh, can, if we relate to them skillfully, serve a useful purpose. So Ajahn Chao wasn't that idealistic and puritanical that he did away with Buddha images. But when it came to likenesses of himself, he was very resistant. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to emphasize the practice of letting go. He wanted to emphasize the practice of uh, seeing the point, not just getting caught up in the forms and clinging to the techniques and traditions so in that short teaching there on the calendar page uh, practice does not depend on whether you're sitting or walking yes the forms thank goodness for the forms thank goodness for the Vinaya uh, the monks discipline if we didn't have it uh, we probably wouldn't have this tradition by now Uh, yes and uh, the scriptures that have, that were encoded, memorised for 500 years and then eventually written down and translated and so we have the Tripitaka in English and all the other languages and we're hugely fortunate to have these forms and these representations, these approximations of Dhamma. But let's remember they're the not the point. Uh, they definitely... Have their place. And probably most of you don't speak Thai, but if you did, you, when you listen to his talks, you probably would have come across where he has this expression where he says, Hairuchak Brahman, or Hairuchak which means to know the right amount. Hairuchak Brahman, to know the right amount of something. Hairuchak which means to know. What's good enough? Now, this is not good enough in a kind of sloppy way. Oh, it's good enough. I can't be bothered doing it properly. But it's it's good enough. We don't have to be the best. We don't have to be the winner. We don't have to uh, be perfect. Yeah? Well, we, we don't condemn ourselves because we're not perfect. We accept ourselves as we meet ourselves and learn from our mistakes. Yeah to know the right amount of effort, trying too hard and we can create obstructions. In fact, he went as far as to say that which means if you know the right amount, generally, then it's the same as knowing the middle way. And so with regards to using the forms, the conventions, the techniques, the traditions, and knowing the right amount is really important. we not overly valuing. Uh, the traditions that we inherit, but we're not dismissing them. I I heard or I read somewhere where uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was asked about uh, how Buddhism was integrating into America or the development of Buddhism in America and and His Holiness replied, he said, Buddhism in America... mm, uh, rather too Tibetan. Mm. Yeah. Well, wasn't quite what I expected him to say. Yeah. I think he's pointing to the same thing. Yeah. The form of Buddhism, as it migrates from Tibet or Sri Lanka or Burma or Thailand or Laos or Cambodia or Vietnam or China or Japan, yeah. the forms of Buddhism... Will inevitably change; they have to change, but so long as they change in a way whereby the spirit is not compromised, hmm. forms can become empty and pointless. Hmm. You know, the forms are, are like you can think of forms as like a conduit; they conduct the energy, like you know, a cable conducts electricity. Hmm or more relevantly to us right now, a, a water pipe conducts water. Yeah. The other day, Ajinevi Nando, Punya, and myself were upstairs in the main house there with the builder who's about to uh, start some renovation work there. The ceilings in those, uh, that old building were caving in and need to be replaced, and we decided, well, in the process, let's tidy up the whole room, and there's those really ugly old water pipes going down there with those taps that, you know, we could perhaps cover them up and make it look a little tidier. Well, a lot tidier, actually. So we were busy trying to fathom a way of how to cover up these ugly pipes and, and yet at the same time have access, ready access, to the taps. That's so in Abhinanda's point, that we must have access to the taps. Well, of course we must, you know. So what do we do? Do we have a little, a little... Hole that we can get in there, or do we have a removable panel, or you know, do we just forget about it? Do we paint the pipes and hide them? What do we? Well, thankfully, due to Ajahn discernment, he discovered that those pipes are empty. There's no water in those pipes. They've been redundant for a long time. They got replaced. <laughs> we could have spent a lot of time, a lot of money, building some clever cubby hole or removable panel to accommodate these redundant old ugly pipes. So I think as far as I know they've been cut off and (laughs) they're not there anymore. Well, that's the right thing to do with forms when they don't serve any purpose anymore, when they're not serving the spirit. uh, Cut them off. uh, Pull them back up into the ceiling or whatever. So some forms they become redundant but it's not always obvious we need to be very discerning very careful very sensitive very patient I also think of forms as as like maps going on a journey it can be really helpful to have a map particularly the spiritual journey I mean you can get really lost maybe some of us have gotten lost from time to time. I certainly have. Didn't pay enough attention to the map, the spiritual maps. If you don't have a map and you're going on a journey, you can get really lost and spend a lot of time and waste the opportunity and the resources. It could have been avoided, possibly, if we just had a good map and paid proper attention to it. But then again, (laughs) having really good maps and spending your whole time looking at the map, I mean, what sort of a journey is that going to be? I mean, maybe you don't even get anywhere, you don't even get started, you can just be busy loving this map, unless you're a, you know, a cartographer who loves maps and that's your thing, is to study maps and how they were created and so on, but you know, even cartographers, if they don't go on the journey, well, they're missing the point. You know, Spiritual cartographers, we're very indebted to them, in the Tripitaka cabinet down the back, there, full of all those Dhamma books. We're very in- indebted to the scholars who have studied the maps, who have translated the maps and recorded and maintained and transmitted the maps so we have them. But if those spiritual cartographers did not embark on the journey, then they missed the point. They didn't realize the spirit and the spirit of this journey is to recognize the spiritual faculties, yeah. to recognize the spiritual faculties that we have, the spiritual potential we have, the heart's longing for liberation and how it expresses itself in faith in energy and mindfulness and recollectedness and discernment. The, the classical teachings of the five spiritual faculties that we have, sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. That's the point. But we can know about saddha virya Samadhi panya, be going on about saddha virya Samadhi panya, but not know. Maybe we don't know the functioning of saddha, of the quality of trust, knowing how to abandon our controlling mechanisms and simply trust, to abide in a state of not knowing, to stay open-hearted, to stay embodied, to rest in in this here and now, whole body-mind, judgment-free awareness, waiting for understanding to emerge. If we're always in compulsive controlling mode, we can't do that. We don't understand the the value, the function, the nature, the characteristic of sadha. So knowing about sadha, knowing about Virya, Knowing about sati, knowing about samādhi, knowing about punya is not the point. But isn't it great that we have the theory? Isn't it great that we have the forms? Yeah, that's really important. So as we familiarise ourselves and we give ourselves into the training, then uh, for sure our relationship to the forms, the conventions, the traditions is going to change. Yeah, the structures have their place. Just like you know, like learning to walk, we depend upon the structure of our parents. You know? Our parents. We hold our parents' hands as we learn to walk. Maybe in the beginning, two hands: mum on one side, dad on the other, and we learn to walk. And then, eventually, we let go of one, and now we've only got one hand to hang on to. And eventually, we, all of us here, at some stage, we let go of that as well, and we learn to walk on our own. You know? In the beginning, we depended upon our parents for you know, livelihood. They went out and did all the work, earned the money, but eventually all of us learnt how to make our own livelihood. You know? So we depended upon these external structures and developed our own. We, in other words, we let go of the forms, hopefully at the right time and the right way, but that doesn't mean really to say we got rid of them. Uh, letting go of our parents and learning to walk or in our own living it doesn't mean to say we get rid of our parents. Uh, of course, we still have respect and gratitude uh, for those forms that supported us at a certain stage. So talking about this partly is because it's important that as we progress and evolve in our, on our spiritual journey, our relationship to the forms and structures and conventions is going to change. Uh, but as we let go of the old relationship and move on, we maintain, hopefully, a sense of appreciation, a sense of respect and gratitude for that which has supported us. Mm-hmm. Remembering, of course, the example of the Buddha himself when at the time of his realisation and when he felt ready to share the benefit of his realisation, the very first people he thought of who he could share the benefit with was his old teachers. Mm. He had spent time with this teacher and that teacher and and then realised that they weren't going to give him what he was looking for and so he left them and moved on to something else. But once he did find what he was looking for, his uh, aspirations, his wish was to go back and share the benefit with them. Mm. Or in the simile that the Buddha himself gave the simile of the raft we want to use the raft to cross the river from this bank to the further shore without a raft it could be really dangerous really difficult maybe impossible so we use the raft to get from one bank to the other and when we get to the other side we don't have to pick the raft up and carry it Mm. we've done with that structure that convention, that form also of course hopefully we don't arrogantly kick the old raft back into the river and say well done with that thing, we could do a little repair work on it and maybe send it back to help somebody else So, so to be alert to the function of the forms and not fall prey to the delusions that come from our materialistic attitude, uh, which means that we end up clinging to structures beyond their use by day. But how do we know when to let go? How do we know when and how to let go of a particular structure or form or convention? Or like if you're a monk, you say, Maybe I should disrobe yeah, all these rules. I, they were OK in the beginning, but I don't think I need them anymore. I could do with a little Guinness, I think. Oh. <laughs> or, I don't know, maybe eating in the evening, maybe that would be good for me. I'm getting older, food in the evening. <laughs> maybe I should disrobe. So well, maybe I should stay longer. maybe this is delusion. Maybe this is delusion. Maybe this is Mara. So, how do I know? Or maybe I should change traditions. Maybe I should become a Zen practitioner. Zen, they've got the aesthetics down. You know, Zen priests are allowed to garden. And you know, I don't know. Or should I stay with Theravada a bit longer? Well, there's all sorts of decisions, all of us come up with sooner or later. In our lives, all of us get to the point of feeling unsure, not certain. What should I do? Should I let go of this and pick up something new and different? Or should I hold on to it a bit longer? Well, when we're faced with that uncertainty, what do we do? All of us are faced with it over and over again, time and time again. What matters most is that we learn how to transit these periods of uncertainty you know, that we find ourselves in. All of us find ourselves in them over and over again, and surely it's important that we find out how to really learn how to grow when we find ourselves in with such a quandary. And the first thing we do, always the first thing we do, is check to see that we're safe by checking our precepts. Mm-hmm. Going into the unknown going into the territory, new territory, it's important that we feel safe. Mm-hmm. Because when we go into the unknown and letting go of old support structures, we can easily feel uncertain. We can easily feel afraid. Mm-hmm. So how do we sure ourselves up? Well, with the, the natural consequences of living a life of integrity. A life committed to integrity equips the heart with a sense of safety. Mm-hmm. And so we can open to the feeling of being uncertain, open to the feeling of vulnerability, go into that sense, that gut-wrenching, terrifying sense of, I don't know what I'm doing. And not collapse into fear or terror, as can well happen. So first we look at our precepts, see that our commitment is sure, and we look after our sense of, safety on that level always that's the first step and then what's the next thing when we find ourselves in a place where we don't know what we're doing is we pay attention to the fact that we don't know what we're doing now that sounds so obvious maybe some of you are thinking well that's yeah that's obvious but what else do we do Can we do that? Can we really do that? Can we really know that we don't know? Can we really open up to that, as I said, that gut-wrenching sense of uncertainty, insecurity, and really know that we don't know? We get it intellectually. Conceptually, that's very easy to get. But as an embodied experience, it's something else altogether. Rajan Chah was a master in this territory. He himself had practised a lot with doubt and fear of uncertainty. And and again, if you were to listen to his talks, he, yeah, there's something I can remember him vividly saying, uh, which uh, relates to this. He said, uh, well, in English, what he said was, you know, if something's uncertain and you insist on it being certain, you will suffer. Mm. And then he would smile because he really knew what he was talking about. Again, it doesn't sound intellectually very complicated. If something's uncertain and you want it to be certain, you're going to suffer. But if we remember that at the time when we're creating a problem out of the feeling of uncertainty... It may be one of the best things we ever heard. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.